Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. We have all good martinis today. How about that to start off the week? And it's all brought to you by Lending Club. Right now, go to LendingClub.com slash martini. You can check your rate in minutes and borrow up to $40,000. LendingClub.com slash martini. Much more on that in just a moment. So, Jim, I'm not sure what to do with all this good news. This is such a rarity for us. But uh, (laughs) our first good news is really bad news, possibly, for former FBI Director James Comey. So we're really going to enjoy this, particularly if it turns out that this reporting is accurate. This is from Real Clear Investigations. Sources tell Real Clear Investigations that Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz will soon file a report with evidence indicating that James Comey was misleading the president, even as he repeatedly assured Trump that he was not a target. The former director was secretly trying to build a conspiracy case against the president while at times acting as an investigative agent. Two U.S. officials briefed on the inspector general's investigation of possible FBI misconduct said Comey was essentially, quote, running a covert operation against the president, starting with a private defensive briefing he gave Trump just weeks before his inauguration. That's the uh, the dossier briefing. They said Horowitz has examined high-level FBI text messages and other communications indicating Comey was actually conducting a counterintelligence assessment of Trump during that January 2017 meeting in New York. In addition to adding notes of his meetings and phone calls with Trump to the official FBI case file, Comey had an agent inside the White House who reported back to FBI headquarters about Trump and his aides, according to other officials familiar with the matter. Jim, I don't know how many desolate patches of trees and on Twitter can make up for this type of allegation. We'll obviously see what happens when the IG report officially comes out. We were supposed to expect it by the end of May, early June, so it's overdue. But if this is pretty close to accurate or dead on, Jim Comey's got a lot of explaining to do. Yeah, uh, this is a good martini with an asterisk. And by that, I don't mean a lesser known Democratic presidential candidate. <laughs> um, because it's possible Paul Sperry of Real Care Politics, it's possible his sources are not being accurate or honest. So I guess I just say, you know, put a little post-it note next to this one, fold over the page. At some point, we're going to get that IG report. And that IG report might come out and look only a little bit bad for Comey. I suppose it's possible the IG report say, no, no, Comey's fine. It's probably going to look pretty bad. If this is the case, it's going to look really bad for Jim Comey because it's going to basically say Jim Comey was basically lying to the president all the time. And if Comey was lying to him the whole time, then all of a sudden that firing of Comey looks a heck of a lot more justifiable. Oh, by the way, Comey said this under oath to Congress twice that he was not investigating the president. Maybe Comey thinks he's got some sort of, well, I can't inform the subject of investigation that he's under investigation. Otherwise, he might act differently or or try to destroy evidence. Or I I guess you probably couldn't argue the president of the United States would be a flight risk, would you? (laughs) He might run off to another country and stop being president, you know. And plus, the whole thing just makes Comey look like a guy who was, if not out to get the president, then was certainly looking for ways to create an indictment or, or some sort of prosecutorial brief against Trump from the beginning. And that is not in keeping with the Boy Scout image he's wanted to have. Look, and let's point out that since basically the beginning of the Trump presidency, there has been this effort to paint Jim Comey as the last Boy Scout, the last honest man in Washington, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody's put more effort into that than Jim Comey. I think when Comey got fired, 
quite a few folks saw it as a raw deal uh, and that Trump was lashing out at him over some sort of perceived slight or, or insufficient loyalty or something like that. And people may remember, I've talked to a whole bunch of retired FBI officials, James Gagliano, who's now a commentator on CNN, and basically said, what do you think of Comey? And there were a whole bunch of people who really had respect for Comey, who were not critics of him when he was fired, who by a year later were not such a fan of him, doing going out and doing the Stephen Colbert show and all the different ways that Comey came across as a more partisan guy than he had seemed to be when he was in office. Look, you know, if this IG report pans out the way that the Real Clear Investigations uh, Paul Sperry describes, there's going to be a giant recalibration of what everybody has thought about from the beginning of all this. And the whole idea that Comey was this, you know, to, to paraphrase the uh, Jack Ryan and Harrison Ford's finger-pointing performance, you know, not black and white, right and wrong, you know, attitude towards, uh, towards things. You know, also those who would say that there was always a conspiracy to get out uh, to get Trump. Uh, I've always subscribed to the idea that it was more groupthink than a coordinated and organized conspiracy. But look, if Comey had this kind of axe to grind and was being dishonest with other people, this is going to put a lot more gasoline on that fire there, Greg. Absolutely. I'm trying to figure out how good Jim Comey is at the Potomac two-step. Not uh, quite as good. Ah, by the way, very depressing factoid about clear and present danger, Greg. Yes. If you look closely, the president has jelly beans on his desk. <laughs> so he's supposed to be Pretty Reagan? clearly was meant to be Iran-Contra. So. Oh, well, that's a shame. Good old George Moffat. Uh, so how do you think uh, Jim Comey is going to respond to this? Is it going to be the, gee, Willikers, I can't imagine that anyone would accuse me of such a thing. Probably he'd walk in the woods and take an Instagram and say so many questions. <laughs> Now we know what some of them are. Yes, uh, you know. If this is actually right. So, well, it's no secret that a lot of folks in Washington have a character deficit, Jim, but a lot of folks in and outside of Washington might be dealing with debt of another kind. And if you're carrying revolving debt, that means you're not paying off your card every month and could be paying thousands in interest every year that you don't have to. With Lending Club, you can consolidate your debt or pay off credit cards with one fixed monthly payment. Since 2007, Lending Club has helped millions of people regain control of their finances with affordable fixed-rate personal loans. No more trips to the bank, no more high-interest credit cards. Just go to LendingClub.com, tell them about yourself and how much you want to borrow, pick the terms that are right for you, and if you're approved, your loan will be automatically deposited into your bank account in as little as a few days. Lending Club is the number one peer-to-peer lending platform with more than $35 billion in loans issued. So right now, go to LendingClub.com slash martini. You can check your rate in minutes and borrow up to $40,000. That's LendingClub.com slash martini. LendingClub.com slash martini. All loans made by WebBank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. All right, Jim, follow up on our good martini from the end of last week, and that's Bernie Sanders and not paying his staffers $15 an hour. His unionized staff uh, pushing back, as we reported, because Sanders wasn't living up to his campaign promise that the basic living wage ought to be at least $15 an hour. So now Sanders has responded, and the way he's done it is especially delicious. Fox News. Democrat presidential candidate Bernie Sanders announced this weekend he will cut staffers' hours so that they can effectively be paid a $15 an hour minimum wage, prompting mockery from critics who say the move is more evidence that Sanders' plan to raise the national minimum wage is hypocritical and would only lead to less work and more unemployment. The Washington Post first reported last Thursday that Sanders' field staffers were upset that Sanders championed a $15 minimum wage on the campaign trail and made headlines for railing against major corporations who pay quote-unquote starvation wages, even as his own employees made poverty wages. 
In response, Sanders told the Des Moines Register he was very proud to lead the first major presidential campaign with unionized workers, but also bothered that news of the internal strife had spilled into the media. The self-described socialist candidate said junior field organizers earn roughly $36,000 per year in salary with employer-paid health care and sick leave. But he acknowledged that their salary can effectively dip below $15 per hour if staffers work much more than 40 hours per week, which is common on presidential campaigns. The solution is to, quote, limit the number of hours staffers work to 42 or 43 each week to ensure they're making the equivalent of $15 an hour. So... Jim, this sounds kind of like Obamacare, actually, and employers yes. try, trying to get away, avoid the mandate. What do you make of Bernie figuring out how businesses actually work? Yeah. So there are going to be some employers who are going to be cheap. There are going to be some employers who are going to try to you know, pay their workers as little as possible. And those of us who are not employers or on the employee side have always kind of had, okay, if you make yourself more valuable to your employer, either you become more valuable to that employer and they pay you more, or some other employer will say, hey, wait a minute, that person's a good worker. I'd better bring, you know, I'll, I'll pay more to have that person on my team over here doing this. Sanders should really get pummeled for this. And my guess is that uh, one of my favorite observations of the weekend on Twitter, uh, Greg, was this, this prediction that Elizabeth Warren will do a tomahawk dunk on him <laughs> in the next debate by raising this issue. Because, you know, the, the question for Bernie Sanders would be, wait, if you're in this situation where you've got basically a set amount you can afford to pay a, a, a worker and you got to raise it to 15, fine, but I'm not going to give you more workers. I'm not going to keep your number of hours the same. I'm going to shorten your hours because I can only pay you that much. Why do you think every other private business would be the same? Why do you think that only your campaign is subject to economic reality and you can force other companies to increase their wages and not have any uh, uh, economic consequences or have them lower their wage? You know, in other words, if it's perfectly fine and honorable and there's nothing morally wrong with you reducing their hours because you're increasing their wage, why would it be wrong for anybody else to do the same? But just the, the cherry on top of all of this, Greg, is if that just wasn't good enough, and this is, you know, we really are getting into the, you know, inject this into my veins territory. <laughs> Bernie Sanders is complaining that his staffers are complaining to the media about this instead of handling this through traditional negotiation. Quote, and I, I, you know, I'm going to do the Bernie Sanders impression, sure. whether you like it or not, Greg. Yeah. It does bother me that people are going outside of the process and going to the media. That is really not acceptable. It is really not what labor negotiations are about, and it's improper. So if you're negotiating with Bernie Sanders, don't talk to the media. <laughs> I mean, would, would he be okay with this kind of objection from any other employer? Would he find, you know, would he tell union members or other folks that they have to be quiet during negotiations and they can't publicly complain while the negotiations are going on? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's good to know. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren's whispered indignation is going to be absolutely wonderful to watch in this situation. Do you think Bernie will go with the bellowing defense? Or, or will he go with the very uh, laid back and uh, I'm, let me just explain how this goes uh, type of approach? He, oh, but, those, Greg, those... that's pretty good. Uh, you and I could do an entire podcast entirely in Bernie Sanders' voice, um, <laughs> our poor listeners. The interesting question is, like, one, if you're Elizabeth Warren, on the one hand, you want to go after Bernie Sanders hard, right? Because you want to pursue it's like, I am the true progressive in this race. On the other hand, if you do that, you run the risk of alienating people who are currently on that Bernie Sanders bandwagon. I remember people probably remember the fights about the Bernie bros against Hillary Clinton back in, in 2016. You know, that, that question, you go after him too hard, people might see you know, the Bernie fans might not want to transition that easily from one side to the other. And they might say, hey, wait a minute, you know, you're really demagoguing this. On the other hand, you can't afford to ignore it. 
if you're Elizabeth Warren, probably the best move here, and she looks like she had a pretty good fundraising quarter, raise everybody to $16 an hour. <laughs> Don't limit their hours. <laughs> Hope like hell you get a whole bunch of donations to cover all this and go with that and then say, how do you like them apples, Bernie? You know, and just observe that I'm the true progressive in this race. Nobody's ever going to accuse me of underpaying my staff. So the one thing that's never going to happen in this debate is anybody on the stage with them, including those two candidates, actually admitting that that's the way the free market works and that's fine. And that's the, <laughs> you pay people uh, based on what you can actually afford to pay them. Yeah, or, or some variation of, hey, you know what? Maybe this stuff is more complicated than we thought. <laughs> and it, it didn't all represent greed and, and maliciousness and malevolence and selfishness. Maybe people really do have a limited amount of money that they can afford to pay employees when their business isn't doing that well. And they have to pay the minimum and they have to hope that the workers stick with them or, the, you know, and the recognition that workers always have the opportunity to go out and find better employers. Yeah, no Democrat on stage is actually going to say that. They're just going to nail Bernie for being a hypocrite, I suppose. Let's move on to the uh, crazy. That's not crazy. It's good. It's good again. So let's move on to Texas. Jim, we haven't talked about her in a long time, but man, did we have some fun back in 2013, 2014. Wendy Davis, uh, she, of course, gained some fame as a state senator. She launched this ridiculously long filibuster famous for her pink tennis shoes to block pro-life legislation, which was really just making abortion clinics uh, abide by hospital standards in terms of cleanliness and wide hallways to get gurneys through and things like that. I don't believe there was any actual restriction on abortion, but she, of course, treated it like there was. She uh, succeeded temporarily. Then uh, it got brought back up in a special session, and she failed. Then she challenged uh, for the governorship of Texas in 2014. It was an open seat at that time, running against Greg Abbott. He destroyed her by over 20 points, and Wendy Davis is back. AP, Texas Democrat Wendy Davis announced Monday that she will run for Congress in 2020, five years after badly losing a run for governor that was propelled by her 13-hour filibuster of an anti-abortion bill in the state capitol. Davis will challenge freshman Republican Congressman Chip Roy, who made headlines in May for single-handedly blocking $19 billion in disaster aid over protests that it didn't include money to address the migrant crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. The spending bill ultimately passed, but not before Roy's delay frustrated lawmakers on both sides. So she sees a vulnerability there. Chip Roy only won by two points in 2018 in a pretty red district. You could probably chalk some of that up to the Beto factor. Beto probably won't be on the ballot this time, though, Jim. The Democratic presidential nominee will be pretty far left. And so Chip Roy's probably in pretty good shape here. And uh, even if it is tighter than I suspect, Wendy Davis isn't really going to help Democrats pick up that seat, is my guess. Yeah, um, you might argue that this is probably an easier district for Democrats than Texas statewide, but not enormously. Um, You know, Chip Roy's victory margin is about what Ted Cruz's was, maybe a little bit smaller than Ted Cruz's was statewide when Beto O'Rourke had, you know, more money than God and the entire national media operating as his, you know, PR firm. Does Chip Roy need to sweat this? Probably. Uh, you know, you can't take him lightly. Ted Cruz emphasized that the one way Beto was going to be able to beat him is if he was asleep at the wheel. No pun intended about Beto O'Rourke being <laughs> asleep at the wheel or reckless in driving. I think what makes this a good martini for us, Greg, is that we have seen both national and Texas Democrats not great at assessing what actually appeals to Texas voters and not great at realizing when they really have a good chance and when they actually are simply going to do better than usual. And Wendy Davis in 2014, man, she did a terrible job running against Greg Abbott. And Democrats were totally convinced she was going to turn this into a real race. 
The polling never got close. They convinced themselves it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And 2014 was one of the best years for Republicans in a really long time. I suppose I should give a little bit of credit. I think Wendy Davis ran ahead of most of the typical uh, the Democratic ticket there. But I want to say I'm pretty sure she didn't crack 40 percent. But, you know, my guess is that Wendy Davis is going to get a lot of national donations from Democrats across the country, probably fall just short. And that's money that probably could be better spent elsewhere by Democrats. Yes. Follow the Amy McGrath model. That seems to be working out great there. So there you go. Like they're really not good at this, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you got Joe Cunningham down in South Carolina's first district where my parents live at Hilton Head. You got a Democrat elected in Oklahoma City. Uh, there's a new oh Dan McCready versus Dan Bishop. McCready is tied with Dan Bishop, the, the challenger. There's an internal poll for McCready. You know, if you're tied in your internals in a Republican leading district, you're probably in trouble. There's a whole bunch of places where Democrats are going to have tough seats to hold, but instead they're going to throw money at Wendy Davis and and you know in Kentucky. Yeah, good luck, folks. Enjoy it. Have fun. Ah, the joys of identity politics, Jim. There are some advantages. We see the Democrats eating their own, and they're going to dump tons of money into races just because they like the the gender or the ethnicity of the candidate, even if they don't fit the district or the state at all. So, Or finally, we've finally got a true strong progressive running in this not very progressive district. <laughs> yeah, Lamar Smith was the congressman before Chip Roy. I don't remember him ever having a competitive race. So uh, if things revert back to form in Texas, I, I think Chip Roy ought to be in pretty good shape. I'm sure he did take quite a bit of heat over blocking the disaster aid bill, but uh, I'm not sure it's enough to derail him, especially against Wendy Davis. So, Jim, lots of fun. I like having three good martinis. Maybe we can do it again sometime. I was going to say, uh, we'll, we'll hope for it. Dear News Cycle, please cooperate. <laughs> Love Jim and Greg. That'd be nice. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget our friends over at Lending Club. If you need a hand in the lending department, lendingclub.com slash martini, lendingclub.com slash martini. And tune in again Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.